0: What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone! I don't need to kill anyone! I think it... Believe me, if I started murdering people there'd be none of you left. (laughs) Hello and welcome, friends and enemies. Welcome to Exploring Evil. Please tell your friends and enemies all about the show. Leave us a five-star review if you like the show, and share information about the show on Facebook, Twitter, and your favorite social media. Tonight, for a Halloween special, we're going to be talking about Zombie Road. Zombie Road is a mysterious road here in St. Louis that's filled with folklore of ghosts but it's got its own tragic history that definitely lends credence its haunted reputation. Evil. It lurks in the hearts and minds of man. It dwells in the dark recesses of our surroundings, and it lies in wait, like a venomous serpent preparing to ensnare its prey. Evil doesn't always just strike. Sometimes it creeps up and wraps its coils around its victim, and the case we're about to examine is no different. Zombie Road, a real-life dark forest in the outskirts of St. Louis. It is an abandoned stretch of road full of mystery, intrigue, and the unexplainable. It stretches out along the treacherous bluffs of the infamous Merrimack River. The sordid history of the area began when it was a meeting ground and place of trade for North American Indian tribes. The area was also a place of fierce battles and undoubtedly death. Thousands of arrowheads and several Native American burial sites have been excavated in the area. Eventually the railroad carved its way through the area. Dozens of men lost their lives during the construction of the railroad. Railroad workers were heavy drinkers, and violence was commonplace in the makeshift casinos and brothels that popped up along the tracks. Fatalities due to accidents during construction were also very frequent. A resort town would soon spring up where the tracks stretched through the area. It wasn't an ordinary town. It was summer homes built by gangsters for gangsters. At that time, there was one way in and less ways out. With all of the serene land around Zombie, it's a perfect place for snitches and enemies to meet their demise. Back in those days, the police didn't much care who was responsible for a thug getting whacked. A steady flow of dead bodies fertilized the beautiful foliage around Zombie Road. During this time, farmers worked the land around Zombie Valley, and it would soon turn into a small town complete with its own church, school, and general store. As hardworking middle class people settled in the area, they started to notice strange happenings, bizarre, untimely deaths, strange creatures, and more. Satanist. Locals constantly found evidence of devil worship in the secluded woods around Zombie Road. During the course of this podcast, we will reveal the truth about the haunted history of the infamous Zombie Road. And I'm going to take you guys on a tour on a case by case basis. <laughs> the watery grave. It was an end of a long summer in the late 1970s and three boys were enjoying a dip in the Merrimack River. As the shadows grew tall the boys grew tired. But as most people of youth they refused to give in to their weariness. A mistake in most cases can be fatal at Zombie Road. The boys had been jumping off a concrete platform at the old gravel plant about 12 feet off the surface. One of the boys had trouble on his last jump. The other two reportedly jumped in to help, but it was not meant to be. The unforgiving undertow of the river claimed lives. The river is not a good place for children, especially unsupervised children. There are no alligators, but beneath the surface, death awaits its next victim. Dead Man's Hand In the early 1900s, the Merrimack Valley in Missouri was a much different place than the affluent St. Louis suburb we know today. Tough German farmers turned the rugged land into a lush cornucopia of family farms. On the eastern end of Zombie lay a quaint little hut originally built by and for railroad workers. The man who occupied the hut was a frail man with decades of hard labor creasing his leathery face. He was a hard worker, hard drinker, and hard luck gambler. He met with the same group of quote-unquote friends every Saturday night to play poker. Poker is a funny game because most players fancy themselves as sharks whether they're good or not. Our friend was no different. His card buddies invited him to every game, not because they liked him but because he was an easy mark. He went on drinking and gambling his life away for years. He had gambled away his mother's jewelry left to him when she passed. He gambled away all of his weekly earnings. He gambled away his land. He was down to nothing. Nothing these men wanted from him anyway. He pleaded with them, double or nothing, triple or nothing. They didn't want what he had to offer, a rickety old hut that flooded twice a year, labor from an aging man. Then, one of the men made him an offer. "'Bet your wife, old friend. You've already bet everything else, anyway.' The group of men laughed at the hard-luck gambler, but they would soon see that there were no jokes here. The bitter old man took the bet, determined not to be made a fool of again. One hand, all or nothing. Now our friend was a terrible bluffer, but he figured with his wife at stake, he could bluff the men right out of their boots. Our friend paid no attention to the poor hand he was dealt, and continued the game taking just one card as a way to convince the men his luck had changed. What our friend should have figured out by now is that he had a tell, a habit or gesture one repeats when gambling. Two of the men folded and went out. The dealer called with three kings. Our friend had three eights and so it was that our friend had quite literally lost everything including his mind. He was a bit shocked when his wife gladly left with the dealer. He had nothing to offer her, and she was much younger than him anyway. His lifestyle and vice had cost him everything. He staggered out the door and toward the empty stone hut on the banks of misery. He had gotten away with half a bottle of gin that was on the counter at the gambling hall. He began to drink his sorrows away. The man saw but one recourse to happiness. This life, this earth, this God had dealt him nothing but losing hands. For once, he would be in control of his own destiny. Maybe, he thought, the next life would be kinder to him. He would go all in one last time. He stumbled out to the barn that once housed his cows and grabbed a length of rope. By now the wind had picked up and whistled through the cracks in the boards. He limped inside the stone hut as thunder crashed in the valley around him. It began to hail as he threw the rope over the top of the main rafter in his little hut. He didn't know how to make a noose, so he tied a knot around his neck and stood atop the table his wife had served him countless dinners on. In a drunken stupor, he stumbled off the table and the knot held true and firm. Soon there was just a body swinging from the rafters of the little stone hut. Face of death. It was the early 1960s, and a couple walked up to the bluffs overlooking Zombie Road just, just west of Shadow Ridge. The scenes at the cliffs over Zombie can be absolutely breathtaking, or worse. The couple made the treacherous walk to the top of the cliffs to share a romantic view. Only one would return. The man gets too close to the edge to get a better view over the side. He was unconcerned with the danger. This would prove a fatal error. The man slips and cannot recover. The man's body hits the rock trail minus most of the skin on his face. That is still hanging in the tree. She rushes to get help, relatively speaking. It took her 15 minutes to get back to the car and another 15 to get to a house for help. By the time rescue workers arrived, the young man was pronounced dead and the grisly details were never published. The one thing no one knew is how long he suffered, but all involved prefer to think that his suffering was minimal. White Lady. Legends run through the zombie valley like a fully loaded freight train. The tracks themselves seem to be a dwelling place of one of the protective entities that roam zombie road. She floats up and down the tracks through zombie. She is long and elegant with soft, pale, white skin and long, silky black hair that floats in wispy locks but never tangles. She floats six or seven feet off the tracks warning travelers of impending doom and disaster. The story is always the same. She is wearing a white gown, like a ball gown or a wedding dress. They say it looks like she is floating underwater, only in the air. No one has reported feeling threatened by her or even uneasy in her presence. This leads me to believe that she may be a residual of a drowning victim, roaming, searching for the light. Midnight Express It was summertime in the Zombie Valley in the late 1960s, and the stifling humidity had its grip firmly placed on the throats of the community. A man uses alcohol to escape the heat, a frosty beverage can really hit the spot on a muggy St. Louis night. Now the people who live in the Zombie Road Valley are good old boys who work their tails off. They also play hard. Real hard. This man was no different. He took a walk one fateful evening with a bottle of booze and a pack of cigarettes. He decided to get some fresh air along the railroad tracks in the area. This would be the last walk he would ever take. Unfortunately, he had a bit more to drink than he was willing to admit. He took a seat on the tracks to try to gather himself and stop the nausea. If he could just rest for a few minutes. He fell into a deep state of sleep. Then the inevitable. Tragedy. A train made its way over the death bridge and had no chance to stop before it brought an end to his slumber. The entire town would mourn his loss. Union Pacific shrapnel. A young man takes a walk along the railroad tracks at Zombie Road. The man is sober and not plain on the tracks. His feet smushed into the gravel along the tracks and his thoughts drifted in and out as he made his way along. The miles dissolve away as the freight train thunders through the Merrimack Valley. The young man wasn't worried at all as he was a safe distance off the tracks. As the train breezed by, the man felt a burning in his back. He fell to his knees in agony. Shrapnel had shaken itself loose during the cross-country journey and come off of the train to strike a death blow to a pedestrian in a small Missouri town. Bizarre, to say the least. River of Death. Ask most locals what Merrimack means and you will undoubtedly get the response, River of Death. This is untrue. The correct Native American translation is ugly water. Perhaps if the natives knew what lay around the bend, they would have named it River of Death. A man teaches his grandson how to check the trot line they ran the night before. The locals ran trot lines all the time in the 70s and 80s before the dioxin scare. The river turned out many large catfish and turtles on the trot lines. This is what Grandpa wanted to teach his young apprentice, to remove from the trot line. Both can be quite dangerous, especially to young hands. What the duo turns up, almost sends the old man into the river himself. As they pull up the line, he smiles at the weight on the other end, thinking about the catfish nuggets they could soon be having for dinner. The reality would stave out their appetite as well. The water is dark, but when the ghastly white skin breaks the surface, the old man knew what they had turned up. A month earlier, a couple of float trippers had been dumped into the mighty river. You see, the Merrimack isn't deep and wide or rapid. It's deceptive. It lulls you into a false sense of security, and then the unseen hand of the undercurrent sucks you under to a watery grave. This was undoubtedly the canoeer whose body was not recovered the pale bloated corpse was almost unrecognizable as human. This was only the beginning for the young boy. We will hear more about him later. NecroSearch A few years later the young boy who discovered the corpse on the trot line would again be asked to find the dead. A group of teens were playing on the tracks at the end of Zombie. They wandered out on the bridge overlooking the Merrimack River. You would think an approaching train would be easy to hear, but this is not always the case. They move with deceptive speed because of their size, and they appear to be moving much slower than they actually are. In any case, they were caught off guard and tried to sprint back to the safety of the shore. The fleet of foot were able to make it back, but one of the girls was not so lucky. Nonetheless, the teenage girl was hit by the train, and dismembered. The young boy from the trotline incident was by now a strapping teenager himself. He was drawn to the scene from all of the commotion. The authorities realized he didn't know the victim and sensing the urgency of the situation asked of him a favor. Although it seemed a grisly task it was a mission of mercy. The area, especially at this time, was remote and filled with wildlife. The task was to recover body parts of the girl which had been scattered by the train. Diligence was necessary because vultures, coyotes, and raccoons would soon find the body parts. He and his friends set to the duty of searching out the body parts. The locomotive wreaked havoc on the girl, but the boys had some success in their quest. They found a foot and returned it to be put to rest with the girl's remains. It was an event he would not forget but not the last in a line of extraordinary events in the young man's life. Death Bridge. Jefferson County, Missouri, 1998, just 15 miles south of Zombie Road. Two meth addicts decide to rob an elderly lady to pay for their next fix. The two men break into her house and savagely beat the senior. After taking what little money and few possessions she had, they decide that they need to dump the body. What better place than Zombie Road? The men wrap her up in landscape fabric, add some weights to the bundle, then throw the body in the trunk. They then drive out to the somewhat remote location at Zombie Road. They drag her out over the Merrimack and toss her over the edge of the Death Bridge. But the shock of hitting the cold water wakes the lady up as she was only unconscious. The police autopsy revealed water in her lungs and an even more tragic death than what was previously thought. (laughs) Lover's Lane. A popular pastime in the zombie area, aside from hunting, fishing, and partying, is parking. Springtime, early 1980s. A young lady and her beau park on a gravel side street near zombie. It is presumed that they listened to some music, talked, and shared a drink, and one thing led to another. But the couple would never get their chance to take the next step. It was a cold spring evening, and the lovers had the windows up and the heat on. They could not have known that there was a carbon monoxide leak in the exhaust. The carbon monoxide slowly crept in and laid its trance upon the unknowing victims. Again, the town would mourn the loss. Dead End Street A side road off of Zombie is the site of another fatality. Wolf Trail is now home to a swank neighborhood of architects and lawyers. It started off as a gravel logging road which met up with Zombie near the Merrimack. Our young hunter was making his way back from Zombie where he was scouting for deer. The young man was on his way to his girlfriend's house on Ridge Road and he decided to use Wolf Trail as a shortcut. He made his way through the woods and saw a Dodge Charger parked at the end of the gravel. He had heard the unmistakable growl of the Hemi from a while back. As he approached he noticed that a hose had been attached to the exhaust pipe of the car. The radio was blasting and the young man inside was unconscious. He couldn't open the doors as they were both locked and the window was cracked just enough to get the hose in. He frantically searched for a rock big enough to break the window. He found a rock, cracked the window, and turned the car off. He dragged the lifeless body out of the muscle car. So the young man sprinted the approximately two miles to his girlfriend's house and called 911. He showed the rescue workers where the boy was and they asked him to leave the scene so they could begin life-saving procedures. No one knows for sure if the boy survived, but we are told he was dead when our friend pulled him from the car. Predator or Prey. A house set back about 200 yards off of Larry Elliott Drive in an area where a multitude of shadow people sightings had taken place. It is dusk on a Saturday, as a teenager gets ready to go to a party across town. Although the house is just a few hundred yards from other homes, the feeling of seclusion is undeniable. As she disrobes to get in the shower, she sees a face through the condensation on the window. She screams and calls her brother who is at a friend's house down the street. Her brother got on his four-wheeler and was at the house within three minutes. He found a black nondescript van parked off of their long gravel driveway. He skidded to a stop at the house and ran inside to find his sister huddled in the corner bawling. She said that she was alright and the young man fumed with rage. Most people who grew up around Zombie are tough customers and he was no exception. He charged out to the van that was still trespassing on his property. By this time his friend had arrived and he shined the lights on the van. There was a man sitting in the driver's seat of the van staring straight ahead with a shocked look on his face. The boys beat on the passenger window, and the man stared straight ahead with not so much as a blink. The brother picked up a boulder and rushed at the van like he was going to smash the driver's window. But it's a bull rush, and he stops short. The man does not flinch or even blink. This is unnerving to the young men and they go inside to call police. When they came back out, the van and all the evidence that it had ever been there are gone. Had the Grim Reaper been deterred? It looked like that was the case, in one way or another. The Mystic Orb. A young girl lying in her bed, dozing off to sleep. When a train came along and woke her up, the moon cast a pale light on her room. She noticed something that looked like a tiny black ball that seemed to float out of her wall. The ball stalled in the corner of the room and began to grow in size. It got like a baseball. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. As it continued to grow, it thinned out and grew appendages as it began to float toward her bed. It looked like an outline of a person, a perfect human shadow, but had depth and texture. It formed into a perfect man. And he was tall and he was thin. And it was like um... like, a, like a shadow. Yes, exactly. She let out a scream, and the scene played out in reverse. By the time her sister got to the room, the event was over. She told her sister what had happened. Her sister believed her, but didn't want to scare the young girl with the experiences that she had had. Sleep would not come for the rest of that night for either of the girls. That was pretty spooky. (laughs) Seance of Chaos Case in point, the girls and a few of their friends decided to try a seance in the spring house behind their home. Now they had heard rumors of how seances were done, seated in a circle, holding hands, candles lit and chanting. What they failed to realize is that the last element was communication through possession, if only temporary. The girls went into the darkness of the spring house and lit the candles. They formed a circle and took each other's hands. They had agreed to keep their eyes closed and one of the girls would lead the seance. The girls chanted and the leader asked that a spirit come and visit them. The energy in the building picked up and the air in the spring house became thick and heavy. They continued to chant and the leader beckoned the spirit. Her voice cracked and fizzled as she pleaded for the visit. What she was unaware of is that the spirit was already there. One of the girls cheated and piqued. What she saw would stay with her for the rest of her days. The leader's face turned pale white and her features began to contort to what looked like more of a man's face. Then the contortion stopped and it looked like a movie projected onto her face. It freaked the girl out. She screamed and ran from the spring house. A few more seconds and the spirit may have completed the possession. The girls laughed at what they considered the baby of the group getting scared and running off. They thought it was funny. But it may have saved them all from terrors beyond their imagination. The girls may have wanted to communicate, but if the spirit wanted to maintain its grip on the leader, who knows what would have happened. The youngest said that the leader, since that fateful day, always seemed a little bit off. Old Blue and the Mummy. The same two girls grew up in a house that had a couple of extra occupants. One was an apparition that caused a lot of havoc in the household. It appeared to the girls on a number of occasions. The precursor to its arrival was always the same. Tap, drag, tap, drag, tap, drag. What was described sounds like a peg leg or a paralyzed leg. One step and then dragging the other foot. Frightening enough to hear, I'm quite sure, but the sight of it was terrifying indeed. The entity consisted of a blue fiery core that had black appendages that reach out from the center. Once, as the girls heard the creature coming up from the basement, and they could not get to the staircase without crossing in front of the specter, they decided to hide in the pantry. The doors on the pantry closed. The girls peeked out through a crack between the door and the wall. The entity approached ever so slowly, and the girls described a hand that reached out from the glowing center. It seemed to crawl out toward the pantry door, and the giant hand appeared to be webbed. Just as it lay its violent tension on the door, the girl's uncle walked in the front door and yelled their names. Instantly, the apparition was gone. But the fear remains to this day, the image indelibly etched in the girl's memory forever. Rearranged. As children, the two girls would often be looked after by their grandma. Now the grandma spent most of her time in the living room listening to the radio or reading. She was hard of hearing and was never bothered by the little games that Old Blue would play. But for the girls, it was another story. Often they would hear pots and pans banging around downstairs, but it was not grandma making dinner. It was the ghost. The girls would go downstairs and all of the dishes would be out of the cabinets and on the kitchen floor. Pots and pans under the table were just the beginning. Old Blue would rearrange the furniture and cause lots of mischief. Aside from the time he reached out towards the girls, he had never been physically threatening. Lucky for the girls, any entity with enough strength to move furniture and other objects could do some real damage. The only damage he caused was straining the relationship between daughters and family, as they were blamed for most of the mischief around the house. Land of Shadows Rumors of shadow people run rampant in the land of zombie, but as a youth, I had mostly chalked it up to the ramblings of methamphetamine addicts. However, as a child, the two girls both told a story which was bone-chilling to the core. As youngsters, they were trying to get to sleep in preparation for the early morning wake-up call for church. Sometimes this can be difficult when you live 20 yards from railroad tracks, but they had grown accustomed to the situation. A train barrels through the Zombie Valley with no intentions of stopping in the community the railroad helped put on the map. The girls looked up at the light which cast itself on their wall every time the train went through. This time they noticed a man in the light that cast his shadow on the wall. Logically, they thought he must be the engineer of the train on the front of the engine, checking something or doing repairs. They looked out the window and saw that the light had traveled uninterrupted straight through their window. Simultaneously, they stepped aside and looked back. The shadow was there on the wall again. It had what looked like a fedora on its head. The girls were frozen in fear, as this was the entity they had not yet encountered. Then, just as it appeared in silence, it leaped out of the light, never to be seen again. Sleep would not come for the girls that night. Hide and Seek Autumn lay its blustery winds into the zombie valley and the leaves changed into their beautiful colors as they had done throughout the years. Pumpkin orange, sunshine yellow, and of course, blood red. Leaves clung to the oaks and maples of the land. The kids were back in school and cherished the free weekends to play the games they loved. The girls and several of their friends, including a boy named Terry, gathered for a game of hide-and-seek. The children each took their turn as the hiders and seeker. The landscape of the house they were playing at was beautiful indeed. A large, wide, flat yard that butted up to the railroad tracks was backed by a steep grade with a corn crib, a well house, and a feed shack. The children played in back of the house along the steep hillside. It was Terry's turn to count and seek the others. He put his face up against a tree and began to count. One, two, three, four. The girls and others began to hide, and one of them ran up the hill and ducked behind an old oak tree. She peeked from around the tree, and Terry was right there laughing at her. She cried out, You cheated, and he didn't say anything. He just pretty much kept staring at me. The girl looked down the hill to see that he... In fact, Still had his face planted in the tree at the bottom of the hill counting. She turned her head and saw that the young boy had what she described as shark eyes. No whites, no pupils, just black and void of any emotion or feeling. Then I noticed that his face changed. The boy then laughed hysterically and ran off into the dense foliage of the woodlands of the Zombie Valley. The girl ran back into her house and left the others to play the game. This, she says, was the scariest moment of her life. A friend and I investigated Zombie Road at Shadow Ridge one night and began by shooting at the spot that he captured a famous photo of what appeared to be black shadows of children standing in the moonlight between the trees. It was very dark but the infrared cut right through the darkness to illuminate the area. Soon after, we began to hear footsteps in the leaf litter. The footsteps were human in nature. One, two, one, two. We used our infrared illuminators to scan the area, but there was nothing there. The steps continually grew closer. These were not EVP, but fully audible footsteps. A heaviness set into the valley, which took our breath away. The steps grew closer still. We then flooded the area with LED lights and scanned back and forth, we saw nothing as the steps grew closer I shouted who's out there instantly the heaviness was gone and the footsteps stopped this was one time when I felt very threatened at Zombie Road on our way out I heard a distinct female voice say help me on another investigation I was walking behind the rest of the group in a single file line We walked through Shadow Ridge and began to have a feeling of being watched from above. We began to take photos of the bluffs above us and witnessed orbs that seemed to be raining down from above. Most of them seemed to be green or purple, and you could see them in the flashes of the camera. Once they stopped, I got a tap on my shoulder. I thought it was a drop of rain or dew from the trees that hung over the road. It happened several times after that with no precipitation and out in the open with nothing overhead. Then I was tapped again, this time several taps in a row that seemed very urgent. Every time I turned around, there was nothing there. I was convinced that it was paranormal. I suggested an EVP session. We asked questions for several minutes until one investigator said, I know you are here, just give us a sign. Immediately, a pack of coyotes began to howl ravenously. We moved out. Although it cannot be said that the coyotes were prompted by anything supernatural, it was quite unnerving. We walked single file again, and again I was tapped on the shoulder. This time I had my camera ready and took a photo of a giant orb which seemed to be surrounded by ectoplasm. After I took the photo, I was not tapped again. Another time I took a couple of local radio personalities for an EVP session where the man hanged himself and despite being asked to be respectful, they made fun of the guy and challenged him and laughed. I told them we have to go and I took a photo on the way out that had purple, blue, and green fog with about eight faces clearly visible in the photo. So that's the story of Zombie Road. What you heard was all true based on my interviews of people in the area growing up in the area and experiences that I had so happy Halloween from exploring evil again if you like the show give us a five star review and tell all your friends and enemies about us you can share on Facebook Twitter and your favorite social media I would like to again thank our friends and enemies of course in the United States but also in the Czech Republic Iraq Australia, and now Denmark. Thank you, and good evening, good night, or good morning, depending on where you're listening from. This has been Exploring Evening. I'm your host, as always, Jeremiah, and I would like to send a shout out to Kayla Miller. She is now married, so congratulations to you, and we look forward to having you contributing to the show again soon.